Do those who look for their salvation in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? text, and then we'll get to Ruth a little later, okay? In Colossians it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rules or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Thus the reading of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, this opportunity. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord our rock, and our redeemer. Anything that I say out of my own being and who I am, may that be forgotten, and may everything that comes to the heart of the listener from you be taken to eternity. In your sense, Amen. I love this Colossians text, by the way. I love this Colossians text because he is redeeming all things. Um, I think there's a lot of misnomer, and I think this, this text along with this creed, is trying to speak uh, not only to maybe its current context and its current time. I think this text speaks right to our misunderstandings about who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to and what Jesus is doing. I think that's incredibly important to realize about this text. So, will you go back to the first verse? Please. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does this not say? This does not say, look, a tree, I see God. Paul is telling us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? Now, you might see a beautiful tree. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, and right around October, the leaves start changing their colors, maybe early, maybe mid-September, they start changing their colors, and it is beautiful. And I won't deny, you look at that tree and you say, wow. I see the glory of God. But that's his creation. It's not his image. Right? That's a big distinction. Let's go to the next verse. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, 
What this is trying, what this is not saying, I'll tell you what this is not saying. Ah, oh, that's just an evil thing. That's just a horrible thing. That's just not good. That's awful. We're quick to say that. We're quick to throw things off as if it was not created by God. How do, you know, how do I know this is true? How do I know? All you have to do is talk about snow a week ago. <laughs> and they're like, oh, snow. Ugh. Am I right? We're quick to say, oh, that's just awful. But I want us to know, I want us to realize that he is redeeming and restoring all things. And we can see this in the verses to come. Go to the next verse, please. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is this not saying? This is not saying, I have to do it, I have to go out, I have to do these things or it won't happen. No. They will happen if they are God's will. They will sink or they will swim in God's will. They will happen or not happen if it's God's will. What verse 17 says is, are you going to be a part of it? You want to be a part of what God is doing. Here's your opportunity. All things hold together. Now, if you look, if you remember the creed, and we're going to get back to that in a second, but if you remember the creed, he's saying, um, we, we, people believe that they have the power of salvation within themselves, and what this is saying is, is, you don't even have the power of breath. You do not have the power of a beating heart outside of God's will. Your heart is beating because God allows it. And the inverse is, is your heart stops due to God's will. I'm not saying that's easy. But it's not much true. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Now, um, I know I've been in church long enough. Now, I've, only, I've actually, uh, for those who don't know me, I uh, uh, never grew up in the church. But I have been in church long enough to know that um, that verse for certain people, that verse is not believed. Because often a lot of people find themselves to be the head of the church. A lot of people, folks, would say, this church sinks or swims on whether I do it. I am the head of this church. And you hear the horror stories of people actually saying stuff like that. Whether it be a pastor, or whether it be an elder, or whether it be whatever any other person in the church might say. Jesus is the head of this church. And he's holding it together by his will. move on. He's the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. We're going to move past that. And through him, I mean, not that that's a throw-off verse. That's a very, very good verse, but that's another sermon for another time in another way. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. This is the essence of today's sermon. As I said last week, you have to make choices when you write a sermon. You actually have to kind of, there's like, maybe, depending on the, the verse, the section of scripture that you're using, there's some things that you could, you could, there's some text you can maybe only preach maybe two or three sermons from that text. This text, like many of the other texts that I've been using this year, um, you, you could preach a lot. You could preach a ton. And I gave you a lot of the examples of the sermons I could have preached on every single one of those verses. But this is the key verse. 
that I'm preaching today's sermon on. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. And through him to reconcile unto himself all things. What's that not saying? Jesus died just for your for you. Your own personal safety. Just for you. Just your personal safety. No. That's saying something completely different. It's saying he's restoring all things. Reconciling all things to himself. Right? I'm not... Let's read the text. It's not saying something other than he's reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is the problem. What am I not saying? I'm not saying all people are going to heaven. When I went to Sunday school, Jim's plug, 9.15, Sunday mornings, come on in. A lot of fun talk. We talked about this today. It was just this impromptu conversation. And in it, I'm not saying there's not a hell. And I'm not saying that no one's going to, everyone's going to heaven. These are not the things I'm saying. But what are we saying here? And through him to reconcile to himself all things. What that means, I'll start with the, I'll start with the, the broad and I'll come into the particular. All things. What does that not include? Anyone know? Is there anyone here who knows what that means? What's, what does that not include? What does all things not include? It doesn't. It's a trick question. All things, in and of its very sense, means that if it's created by God, he's reconciling it to himself. He is making it glorify him. He is reconciling that relationship to himself. What does that mean? That means he loves this. For how much you have to drive in that snow, how often that snow makes, him, makes you cold, he loves snow. I have Joey. <laughs> she's giggling. That's awesome. Because we, I mean, we were passing a piece, she's like, oh, no snow, please. And I get it. He gets it. But if it's created, he loves it. If it's created, he loves it. If he cre- Is there something in, in this world that he has not created? No. He created it at all. And because he created it, and because he loves it, he is reconciling all things to himself. He was reconciling it to himself. That's the broad. The particular. He's reconciling you. He's reconciling me to himself. That is the good news. How, how did he do that? Well, I take us to a story. Um, anyone familiar with the book of Ruth? Um, uh, it's a great example of what we call an atonement theory. That's a big, big 50 cent word for how God atones for sins. In the kinsman-redeemer relationship, now, in, in the culture, there exists in this world, uh, it exists in certain cultures, not so much in this culture, not so much in America, not so much in the West, but in, in the time in uh, 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 Israel, around Israel, there was this, uh, this notion of what they would call the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer would, uh, 
meaning that they were either related to you some way, shape, or form, and they would redeem you. Um, and Ruth is a great example of that. Uh, generically speaking, if, if your husband died, or if you were a child and your parents died, your kin, your family, would redeem you and not just cast you away. They would actually take you in and make you theirs. They would make you their child. Right? Or in Ruth's case, Ruth lost her husband. And who was the woman that she walked with? Does anyone know? Naomi. And, and Ruth, I don't, most people don't know this, Ruth was not a Jew. Did you know that? So she married outside of her, the, Jewish, the Jewish family and, uh, uh, and, and, and went with Naomi. And Naomi said, sure, I will bring you with me. And, and, and Naomi came back to the Jewish land in which she was from to live with her family. And this is where uh, uh, Naomi, or rather Ruth, met who? Boaz, yeah. And Boaz uh, married Ruth. And it's this example of two people bringing Ruth and restoring Ruth to a place not only of just uh, um, food, having some food and some shelter and a place to live, but actually restoring her to a place where she was before, a married woman, um, a, 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 having a family, an opportunity for... Or, for, for wealth and, and the sustaining of life, good, and a good life at that. That's what a kinsman redeemer does. Is this, is this making sense? That's, that's the grand story of a kinsman redeemer, someone who comes alongside and brings, brings someone along, right? Well, there's the beautiful part of that. Here is what we don't get about how Christ is the kinsman redeemer, because we could see, we could see Jesus Christ as the Naomi, and we can see Jesus, or rather God the Father, being like Naomi and Boaz, coming alongside of us and restoring or redeeming us, right? Am I right? Is everyone with me on that? We get that. That makes sense to us because we easily see ourselves as the Ruth figure. But here's what blows us out of the water. Can we fast forward to the Ruth text, please? But Ruth said, this is, this is from chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is beautiful. She had a right response to, to the, the kinsman-redeemer relationship. She had a good response to Naomi there. She lived into a lifestyle of wanting to be redeemed, wanting to actually be reconciled to the Father, wanting to do the right things, right? That is a beautiful thing. She's like, oh, oh, I'm in a very horrible place, and I'm aware of it, but I want. I will, I will worship your gods, and I, whoever you call a friend, I will call a friend. Whoever you are close to, wherever you live, I will live with you. Let me go with you. She had this sense of gratitude. Now, beautiful, beautiful example of kinsman-redeemer relationship. The redeemer and the redeemed. 
the one who needs reconciled and the one who has the power to reconcile, right? But let me ask you something. This is where things go around. In your best days, if you're anything like me, you might have the power to pray that on your own. But I, in my, even in my best days, I would have to say, in my own best days, out of my own power, I've never come close to praying that prayer. You see, what we don't understand about the fact that God became man, the power of the fact that God became man, we see God becoming man in the form of Boaz and Naomi, but we do not see God becoming man and being able to pray that prayer for us, a prayer that we couldn't out of our own power pray. We do not see Jesus also as the Ruth character as well. We do not see the qualities of Ruth in Jesus, the one who came down and lived a life that we could not live. Prayed a prayer that we, out of our best day, could not pray. We do not see that Jesus Christ often. Why? I think the creed gets to it. Dan, could you go back to the creed? It's the second question. Do those who look for their salvation in saints and themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior Jesus? I think this is what it's saying. Go to the next one. No. Although they boast of being his by their actions, they deny the only Savior Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior or those who are in true faith except the Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Why are they talking about saints here? Why does that matter? Of course we understand that maybe a creed written in the time of the Reformation might be a little bit antagonistic to the Catholic Church. We get that. That might be what we're talking about here a little bit. But I think they speak to a little bit more about our own sinful nature, that we know that we need to trust Jesus Christ, but then we start taking that trust upon our own shoulders. We start putting that weight upon who we are, thinking that we are the ones who begin to say the prayer, I want your God. I want to worship the God of the universe. And we start believing that we have the power to do this. We start believing that we are the ones who make our way in this world. And we forget, so much so, that in our best day, the best thing that you have has already been given to you by Jesus, the creator of the universe. He has instilled in your heart a love for him. He's created, he's given you that. And you know what that reconciliation means in this world? Is he's making that love. He instills that love for him, and then he's making that love. He's painting the flame of that love for him. And the way he did that was is that he became, not so much so, and I use this as an illustration, and of course you know this, not by sending angels and, and, and judgment and law and all this stuff from so far away from you. No, he actually became a human being, came down from, from heaven, became incarnate, and started living a life that you could not even remotely live. He became that Ruth who did the right things when the right things were expected to be done. He came and was born, he died on the cross, and he lived a life that you couldn't live, right? 
all this stuff seems to be true, seems to be known. But what I said earlier is, is how often, how often are you so desiring to put some of this on your own shoulders? I'm the one who does this. I'm the one who reconciles myself to Jesus. I'm the one who reconciles myself to him. I need to start living holy li- I need to start living a holier life because maybe he might not love me anymore or maybe Boaz will not redeem me. I need to start doing these things. Am I crazy for saying that this is our attitude sometimes? We start putting the onus and the power and the reconciliation on our own shoulders? Who does that? I do it. I do it often. We're talking about the season of Lent. We're talking about fasting. If you were here on our our, our Ash Wednesday service, you would have heard. You would have heard me say, you need to take some things off and you need to put some things on. But I hope what you didn't hear me say was, you need to do this to earn his love. No, you need to do this to fan that flame that he sets in your heart. You need, why do you try to live a holy life? You do it because you already love him. And you do it because you want to love him more and you want to know him more. You want to get back to that first love, that love of Jesus Christ that I found out about on March 5th, 1999, that I heard about. And I was like, yes, I want some of that. He set within me a desire to love him. And that needed to be fanned. And that needed to add fuel to it. And that needed to put wood to it. And you needed to put stuff on top of it that would only make that fire go farther. And what am I doing more often than not? Water. Water and water. That's my sin, right? That's what we do. We're like, no, no. And every time you think you need to do something, oh, I have to do it. He won't love me anymore. Or, oh, I have to do it because I'm, I have to do it. I have to do X, Y, and Z. You're adding water to the fire. You're not adding flame. You're not adding gas. A great saint. How could I read that quote and then talk about a saint? Mother Teresa uh, fed lepers in uh, a leper colony. And she often said she, she never really felt God's presence often. She knew it was there. That wasn't what she... She just didn't feel that presence. But why she kept doing what she was doing because she loved him. She loved Jesus. I think often we we do things because we have to. April 15th is coming. Why are you going to pay those taxes? Is it because you love to pay them? Do you love paying those taxes? Oh, gosh, I just can't wait to send that check off. And I'll watch my bank account until it comes out. And oh, gosh, it's going to be so much fun. No, no one's saying that. If anyone's saying that, that's... It's crazy. I don't want to call anyone crazy from the pulpit, but I feel like, yeah, if someone gets to that point, then maybe they need to check themselves. But... No one does that. Why do you pay the taxes? Because you use the word have. I have to. I have to pay. And you know that some of the benefits of it, you know, okay, uh, whatever. Certainly not what I'm going to be talking about from the pulpit today, <laughs> about why we should pay or not pay taxes. The point of it is, yeah, we give the Caesar with a Caesar. There you go. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is, I think we treat 
our relationship with Jesus more in that have-to realm. And what Jesus has done is, is he came out, he came from our, he came, uh, became incarnate, and he started living a life in solidarity. In that moment that he was born, he started living a life taking on our humanity, taking on all the junk and the pain. And he lived the life that you couldn't live so that you could say, I get to. I get to go and be sinless. I get to go and do these things. I get to go and work on my salvation with fear and trembling. I get to do these things, not have to. Um, we do all that, and we have all those things working out in our favor, but we have also the benefit of the one who actually took on himself, put on the, put on the, 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 the reality of humanity, and lived this life. We, we overshadow. We don't focus on the, the fact that whenever he was born to the cross, we forget a lot of that, that event there. It's 30, 30 years. We kind of gloss over that. I mean, even the scriptures gloss over that. Our creed, our creeds, the Apostles' Creed, we're going to be, going to be saying it today. What does it say? He was born of a virgin, born of the Virgin Mary. What's the next thing? Suffering upon. Oh, that's a fast forward there. What happened in between the two, the two moments, right? That is a huge, we overlook his life. The fact that he was a human, the fact that he became human and was a part of our lives and is still a part of our lives as a human being. We completely gloss over. Why? Because we focus on the cross. We needed our sins forgiven. But I want to, I want to tell you that if we, he is reconciling all things to himself, he's doing it as a human being from day one when he became a human. That he drinks wine, and not just to show us how we are supposed to live lives. He's not just a model how we're called to live. He's living that life for us perfectly. So we're quick to see Jesus as the Boaz and the Naomi, but how often do we see Jesus as the Ruth, the one who actually was able to pray the prayer that you can never pray and do the things that you can never do? I'll tell you why. You don't like the lack of control. I don't like the lack of control. All you have to do is talk to Leslie about how much I like some control in life. Or someone else. You can talk to someone else who knows me as well. <laughs> I like, I just give me, let me do it. We do this, right? We want control. And Jesus is saying, you have no control. You never had control. I'm the one who makes you holy and often you're pouring water on the flame that I'm trying to ignite. You let go. We let go of that control. And you worship it out of love and reverence. And you do, only thing you do, you do because you get to do it. If you begin to say, oh, this is what I have to do, you need to consider whether you're doing it out of the right heart for Jesus. This is the season of Lent that we're talking about. And Jesus, everything he did, he did because he, get, he got to do it. And I, would, I believe he would even say the cross is something he got to do out of praise and honor to the Father. So if he is willing to go and do the hardest thing, may this cup pass from me. I don't think he said, oh, well, I have to do it. 
I think he, still to that day, the Father wanted him to do it. He says, I get to worship the Father. All the way to the cross. This is the benefit of him reconciling us to him. This is the benefit that we have had. A life full of someone living out of get. Someone living a life of getting to do all these great things. He got to do all this holy life and prayed that prayer that Ruth prayed that I could never come close to praying outside of his power. He's doing it. What did my professor say? Never be surprised by your total depravity. And often we do. We do get surprised by that. We do think that we're wholly out of our own ability. We do think that we're... uh, uh, We mandate. So why did that creed say it? Yeah, they might be blasting the Catholic Church in the midst of the Reformation, but I think they're on to something also, that we're quick to venerate our own actions because then we have control over our own holiness, and then we have control over whether we're going to heaven or not, and then we have control of the whole game. And I think what the Reformers got, and I think what Paul got, and I think what Ruth got is I give it over to you. Because I get to. I get to try to be holy. I get to my salvation with fear and trouble. I get to do these things. Because you've already done it. Does that make sense? Can someone explain to me a, a, a better news than that? We have a God who loves us. And didn't leave us alone. He could have. He totally could have let us alone. We would have ripped ourselves apart. He didn't. He instilled in us a desire to love him. And he is reconciling all of us to him. I believe that. Who's in heaven and who's in hell? Don't ask me. I don't know. But I know I love Jesus. Not because I believe I'm in heaven. But I love Jesus. Because I can't do anything other than that. What I experienced on March 5th, 99 was not a ticket to heaven. What I experienced on March 5th, 99 is a God who loves me. How can I do nothing? How can I do nothing? How can you do nothing? Live out of that love. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to come and uh, feast on your word. Feast on who you are. Let us love you with our whole heart. Join with me in the reading of the Apostles' Creed.